Faith is believing in something you can't see, you can't feel, something that can't be proven. Then how do you know which is the right faith? I think that's a gut thing. I don't think about a right faith. I think about what resonates with me. I feel authentic. It brings me peace. I think there is no absolute truth in any religion. I think it's a matter of subjective experience. I kind of just trust my intuition, trust my gut. You just know. You just got to follow it. You just got to follow what you think is your faith. If faith is blind, then what makes one belief better or worse than any other? And if it's just a leap in the dark, why should any of us feel obligated to believe anything at all? My name is Shane Rosenthal. I was raised in a Jewish home, but became an atheist at a very young age. Later, as I began to question things, I ended up losing faith in my atheism and converted to Christianity. Since that time, I've never stopped asking questions, and I've spoken with authors and scholars from all over the world in order to explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. Over the years, one thing I've concluded is this. We're all believers. But because there are so many conflicting ideas and worldviews out there, we just can't all be right. So how do we find the truth? On this podcast, we'll start by asking questions. I'm really just trying to figure out what I believe right now. Hey there, and welcome back to the Humble Skeptic Podcast. On the last program, I aired part one of my interview with Egyptologist David Roll as we discussed his book, Legendary Kings, along with his work related to the new chronology research. On this program, we'll be airing the second part of that conversation as we explore various archaeological discoveries that could be related to the lives of Saul and David. We also discuss issues related to the recent discovery of the Mount Ebal curse tablet, as well as questions related to the history and chronology of events recorded in the New Testament. So before I bring you the second part of this interview, I'd like to begin this episode with a segment from a documentary that David Roll produced some years ago titled Pharaohs and Kings, in which he discusses the parallels that exist between various cuneiform tablets known as the Amarna letters and the Bible's account of King Saul and King David. In the 1890s, an extraordinary discovery was made on the site of Akhenaten's capital at Amarna. A peasant woman found a buried hoard of clay tablets covered in ancient writing. They turned out to be diplomatic letters sent to Pharaoh. How much is that? These tablets are now dispersed throughout the great museums of the world. The British Museum in London holds many of the most important Amarna letters, especially those which deal with a revolt in the hill country of Palestine. They contain invaluable details about Egypt and its neighbouring states. They're small tablets. The writing is absolutely minuscule. You can hardly read it without the aid of a magnifying glass. They're letters from the city-state rulers of Palestine to Egypt, to Pharaoh in Egypt. And they contain a wealth of political information of the time. Now, this is a crucial test for the new chronology, because this is the time of the new chronology of Saul and David... So now we have an opportunity to compare an ancient document like these with the Old Testament narratives. In the standard chronology, these letters were written hundreds of years before the time when Saul and David ruled in the hill country of Palestine. But in my chronology, three and a half centuries have disappeared. And now, the Amarna letters and the stories in the book of Samuel are set in the same era. 
These tablets should provide eyewitness accounts of the rise of Israel, of Saul and David, and the successful Hebrew revolt against the Philistines. One of the most interesting things we find in the Mana letters concerns a group of people called the Habiru. Now these Habiru seem to be fighting men. They live in the hill country. Now that's a very similar sort of situation to what we find in the book of Samuel, where we find David outlawed from the court of King Saul, fleeing out into hill country and gathering around him lots of disparate folk. And these disparate folk form into an army, a veritable band of soldiers, 600 men in fact. So the interesting question we have here is, are the Habiru of the Amarna letters one and the same as the Hebrews in the book of Samuel? The problem is, there's about 300 years difference between the Habiru of the Amarna letters and the Hebrews of David's time. But in the new chronology, of course, that 300 years disappears. If the Habiru are the Hebrews, they should also be linked to King Saul. In the Amarna letters, the Habiru chieftain is called Labayu. Now, this Labayu is the ruler of the hill country where we are now. Now, that's exactly the same area which King Saul rules over. So, is it possible that Labayu and Saul are the same person? There's an Amarna letter in the British Museum in which Labayu complains to Pharaoh that he's being maligned by his enemies when all he's done is to recapture his hometown from those unnamed enemies. The account of Labayu retaking his hometown is very similar to a story we find in the Bible. King Saul recovers his hometown from the Philistines, and that place is here. In the Bible stories, we hear that Saul's hometown, Gibeah or Jebba, there was a high place, and this high place was a sacred area. And in the high place, the Philistines erected a standing stone, what they call a netsieve. And I think we've got it here. There seems to be a socket down here, which, well, I don't know, it looks to be about the same size as we'd expect for a netsieve, about 25 centimetres. More sockets up here for standing stones as well. Another one over there. The whole of this sort of area is facing east towards the rising sun. I think this is Saul's high place. At this point, you're probably asking yourself, what's this guy actually saying here? He's saying that King Labayu of the Amarna letters is the same as King Saul in the book of Samuel. But the two names are completely different. How can that be? Well, what you have to understand is this. The name Saul, Hebrew Shaul, means asked for. The people came to the prophet Samuel and said, we want a king like every other nation. So he was asked for by the people to be their first king. So it's a traditional name. It's not actually the name he was born with. So he must have had another name in, in life. And I think that name was Labayu. If Labayu really is Saul, can the Amarna letters shed light on the most dramatic event of Saul's reign? the final bloody battle on Mount Gilboa in which he perished. In one Amarna letter, we learn that Labayu also died in battle and in the vicinity of Mount Gilboa. The Battle of Gilboa was a complete disaster for the Israelites. King Saul himself was killed. The army was decimated by the Philistine forces. I've always wondered why that actually happened given Saul's superb position. Here he is on top of the mountain with his forces. The Philistines are down in the valley. They had to come up and meet the Israelites. And yet they won and the Israelites lost. Combining the information from the Amarna letters about the fate of Labayu and the Bible account of King Saul's death, I think I can piece together what really happened here.
It's just one short line in a letter sent to Akhenaten that makes all the difference. This is the clue which tells us what happened to Saul and his army. It mentions the citizens of a place called Gina. Now, Gina is the ancient name of modern Janine, and Janine is down in the valley there on the southern slopes of Gilboa. And it says that these citizens betrayed Labayu, King Saul. And I think these people actually collude with the Philistines and allow the Philistine archers to come up to the rear of the Israelite army to attack and kill King Saul. In David's famous lament over the death of King Saul, he curses the battlefield where the first Israelite king met his end. He calls the place Treacherous Fields, Hebrew, Sedetamit. Why treacherous? The Amarna letters give us the answer. Saul died on Mount Gilboa because he was betrayed by his own people. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice. Ye mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew, neither let there be rain upon you. O treacherous fields! After Saul's death, David becomes king of the Israelites and lays siege to the city of Jerusalem. In the Amarna letters, Abdiheba, king of Jerusalem, writes to Pharaoh in a state of panic. The Habiru are at the gates of the city. The king of Jerusalem pleads with Archonaten to send troops to rescue him from his enemies. Now that's the last we hear of Abdiheba. The Bible gives us the final piece of information. In a single sentence, it tells us that King David and his Habiru army, his Hebrews, capture the city of Jerusalem, which becomes the political and religious capital of the Kingdom of Israel. most recent book, David Roll explores in much more detail all these fascinating parallels between the biblical story of Saul and David and the official correspondence we find in the Amarna letters. And so I decided to ask why, since these parallels were so striking, that they hadn't been noticed by other scholars of antiquity. According to David Roll, it all goes back once again to the chronology. Finkelstein wrote an article saying that Labaya, uh, who's the king of the Amarna period who lives in the hill country, when he attacks the Philistines and recovers cities from there, he's killed near Mount Gilboa. He has a son called Mutbal, and the only surviving son of King Saul is Ishbal. Both mean man of Baal, one in Canaanite, one in Hebrew. You have so many comparisons between the two. Israel Finkelstein says that Saul is the last Labaya. In other words, he actually equates the, the events of King Saul's reign with the events of Labiah of the Amarna letters. But of course, he can't make them the same person because there's 300 years separating the two of them in the conventional dating scheme. So he basically points out all the similarities in terms of the region where the, the kings reigned, what their activities were, who they fought against, etc., etc. Direct comparisons in Saul's time to the time of Labiah, but he can't make the equation that Labiah is actually Saul because he has this 300-year difference between the two periods. In the revised chronology, those 300 years disappear. And then you can have Labaya, the Lion of Yah, which is what it means, as King Saul. Remembering that Saul's name, Shaul, 
means asked for because he was the first king to be asked for by the people of Samuel. So it's basically a regnal name. Yeah, it basically the, the people say we want a king like every other nation. Yeah. So and they go to Samuel and say, pick a king. So he anoints Saul, Shaul, asked for. And then you get Solomon, which means peace as well. That's not his real name. The Bible tells us that he was born with the name Jedediah. Okay. And then and then but his name Solomon because it means shalom peace. Yeah. It means the time a time when Israel didn't go to war, particularly. David, on the other hand. That means the beloved, and that may well be his original name, although maybe not. So, but you say that there is maybe a reference to David in the Amarna letters. There's a name like Daud or something. Dadua. Dadua. That's it. Yeah. Dadua. Yes. Now that could well be a Hurrian title hmm. that's given to him because he had lots of Hurrian mercenaries working for him, and they called him chieftain. You know, which is what it means in in Hurrian. Some people have argued he's El Hanan, the guy who struck Goliath. Because uh, in one section we have this strange anomaly where it refers to Elhan killing Goliath. And that is weird. Is that David? Is David really his birth name or is that the name given to him by his mercenaries? Dadua chieftain or whatever. But in Hebrew, of course, it means the beloved. What's the date for the Amarna letters? Like what time period did they come from? Okay, so in the conventional dating scheme, we're talking about move 13. 50, 13, yeah, around that time, 1350, 1400, something around that period, Arkanat and Tutankhamun, around that era. And that's in the conventional dating scheme. Well, if we go to the revised chronology, which takes these 300 years out at that period of time, then we're down into the time of Saul and David. Yeah, right. So we're, we're in sort of like 1030, 1040, around that period. Yeah. So then you can equate Saul and his son Ishbal with um, Labayo, Labaya, and his son Mutbal, which both names mean man of Mal. So you, you have so many similarities between Saul and Labaya that it really, the only thing that's stopping people from making the connection between the two is the fact we have a 300-year gap between them. And if you're right that Labaya is a different name for Saul, then we actually have a letter from Saul recorded in the Amarna letters. <laughs> we have two. Yes, two. we have two. Yeah. Writing to Pharaoh, and he's being a cheeky one. Yeah. Because uh, he's basically saying, don't mess with me, Pharaoh. I'm just taking my own cities back. And of course, in the story of Saul, he does do that with Jonathan. He takes Michmash and Jebba back, or Gibeah back, from the Philistines. And so he's saying, look, these people are going to snatch my cities, and I've taken them back. So back off, Pharaoh. You have a, a this very strong character there. And and Albright, actually, when he looks at these Alamana letters, says that Labaya writes in pure Hebrew. Hmm. He says that the language is Hebrew, not Canaanite. But in cuneiform or something like that? Yes, they're, yeah. they're written in cuneiform, but yeah. the language, most of the Amarna letters are either Canaanite or Akkadian, but the Labaya letters are not. They're rustic, he calls them. He's, Interesting. They're, they're written by somebody who's not familiar with the rules of kingship. And of course, Labaya was asked for by the people. He wasn't destined to be king. So his scribes are not, you know, thoroughbred uh, scribes of, of linguistic interconnections between different civilizations. The lingua franca of the period was Akkadian. But here he is writing in Hebrew, according to Albright. At one point, he complains that his son has become a traitor or something to that effect, which seems similar to the biblical story. Exactly. He says that his son is associating with the Habiru. Mm. And the Habiru, of course, in the period of Saul are the Hebrews, the mercenaries of David. So uh, Jonathan is David's best friend. He, he, he goes off and associates with the Hebrews, David and his Hebrew mercenaries. Do you think the Habiru are all Hebrew-speaking people and that some of the Habiru are Israelites? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. The word Hebrew, we mustn't think that the word Hebrew is equated with Israel mm-hmm. or Israelites. 
the Hebrew basically, if habiru anyway, the word habiru means dusty feet. Hmm. Uh, it basically refers to people who are wanderers who are not settled in cities. And that describes really what Hebrews were. So it's a little bit like, uh, what would you call them today? Bedouin? Yeah, the derogative term is gypsy. Okay. You would refer to today. Okay. But there would be people who are unsettled, who migrate around, who do not settle down permanently. And so Hebrews, uh, Israelites were Hebrews, but not all is Hebrews were Israelites, right. basically. Right. So the next thing I'd like to discuss with you is the recent discovery of the lead curse tablet that was found on Mount Ebal. Have you looked into that? Oh, well, who wouldn't? It's, a, it's big news, <laughs> yeah. isn't it? I believe that Scott Stripling has argued that the tablet fits with the older Exodus chronology. Is that your understanding as well? Well, what he means by that is that they, they follow, the, the ABR folks, Associates for Biblical Research people, including Scott, they all go for an Exodus in the middle of the 18th dynasty. So what he means by that is, yes, the inscription and the curse goes back to around that time around the time of the of the middle of the 80 dynasty which suits their chronology um on my point of view is it doesn't affect where i put it okay. because the curses would continue well after the period that um that that would be a a, a marker for a, a later period it wouldn't be the time when the when the actual curses first began gotcha but yes it's a curse tablet but is it associated with the altar of of joshua that's the question right well, according to the press release, the tablet contains proto-Sinaitic script, which, among other things, includes the words, cursed by the god Yahoo. And so if after the peer review process, it's determined that this tablet really does include the Hebrew word El for God alongside the older form of the name Yahweh, do you yeah. think this would be solid evidence that would help to uproot the reigning JEDP theory, which basically teaches that the priests at the time of Ezra you know, created yeah. the Bible by weaving together the Yahwist and the Elohimist sources together, and yet here we find it in a single sentence? Yeah, now that is interesting. <clears throat> yes, I think if that's the case, I mean, I, I was not aware that that was a reading because the, the, when the big splash came about the discovery of that, there were lots of questions being asked. If they've now produced the evidence that you have Yahoo in there, and don't forget also that in the Egyptian text, we also have the Shasu of Yahoo uh, in an Egyptian text as well, which comes from this same period, the, the 18th dynasty. So that's just before Akhenaten. And we actually have an Egyptian hieroglyphic text hmm. that mentions the Shasu, the Bedouin of Yahweh or Yahoo. So this name Yahoo goes well back. And in fact, uh, that's why you get these people now in the conventional scheme saying that the Midianites were worshippers of Yah. Uh, but, of course, it could be the Hebrews with this revised dating scheme. It could be the Israelites. Yeah. And that, of course, connects, too, with uh, the criticism people offer you because, you know, you come up with a new chronology and everybody calls you a Yahoo. <laughs> now, I've not heard that. So that's interesting. I shall go and sulk in a dark corner for a bit now. Y-A-H-O-O. Yahoo. <laughs> oh, Yahoo. All right. Okay. A crazy Yahoo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The thing is, you see, this name is interesting, isn't it? Because um, it's basically, I think, the original name of, of God. The Hebrew God was Yah. Right. Uh, and then you have that in the name of most of the kings and, and prophets, Jeremiah and Hosea. And, and, yeah, and then we get some called Eliyahu, Elijah is Yahoo, mm. as opposed to Yah. Um, but I think the original name was Yah. And I believe that the actual name Yahuwah, which you wouldn't perhaps Yahweh, was Yah makes to exist. Yah is one word, and Hua hmm. means makes to exist or exists. So it's an epithet. So the original God's name was simply Yah, and that seems to reflect the idea that in Mesopotamia, and going back to the early 
Sumerian texts, we have two names. We have Enki, and he is in, in the Semitic languages, Ea. And he's referred to even in the Hittite text as Ea. Right. So it's possible that that's where he originates from. He's the god who, who whispers to the flood hero that the, the rains are coming and that you must build an ark in the Mesopotamian literature. So he fits the bill yeah. very nicely. They say also that uh, they found some scarabs there at Mount Ebal, one of them belonging to the Third. If true, would this fit with your view of the timing of the conquest period? Again, it's yes. I mean, it, it doesn't matter if you find stuff that's later than some of your exodus. Mm-hmm. It's not a problem. It's the other way around that's the problem. Right. When you have an exodus in the 19th dynasty and you get all this stuff from the 18th dynasty there, then you have an issue with it. But of course, you know, if, if I'm arguing that the Joshua's altar was constructed wherever in the Middle Bronze Age, then if you're in the Late Bronze Age, the Late Bronze One, then it would be perfectly logical to find stuff like scarabs like that in this part of the world. So, um, especially on that mountain so yes i mean thutmose the third is really on the conventional dating scheme where you should have the exodus if you wanted to have the 1446 exodus date unfortunately the abr folks the associate biblical research folks think it's amenotip the second who comes after thutmose the third so uh, then you've got a problem haven't you because if you've got thutmose the third scarabs on mount ebel and they're claiming that that is the time of joshua then and but they've got an exodus in the in the generation after this in the time of Amenhotep II. Isn't that a problem? Hmm. Uh, all right. So now I know that you're an Egyptologist, but I'm wondering yeah. if you've ever had the opportunity to look into issues related to the history and chronology of the New Testament. Ah, <laughs> okay. This is a hobby of mine. Okay. I'm not really a, a New Testament scholar, <clears throat> but I love mysteries. Uh, and one of the things I've always thought was a bit peculiar is related to the crucifixion. Hmm. And the burial of Christ, uh, you know, for me, the story is such a dramatic and amazing story. But I've never believed for one minute that the Holy Sepulchre or the Garden Tomb were the place where uh, the crucifixion and the burial of Christ took place. And it seems very clear to me that it's all related to the original location of the Temple of Solomon. So the temple faced, as we know, to sunrise. Facing the Mount of Olives. It's facing the Mount of Olives. And in the story of David fleeing from Absalom, he goes to the summit of the Mount of Olives, which is called the head. Yeah, the summit. And Golgotha means skull, but it also means the head. Oh, man. I actually wrote an article on this very topic, and I came to the same conclusion. Yeah, and Calvarium means the cranium, not the skull. Exactly. Okay. And then the, the more importantly, you may know, you may not know, but in Roman law... When a crime is committed, where the crime is committed is where you're executed or where you are arrested. Okay. Where was Jesus arrested? Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. Okay. And where was the crime? When he came from Bethany on a donkey and he rode into Jerusalem being proclaimed the Messiah. That was his crime. So where did they execute him? They execute him on the summit of Mount of Olives, which is the junction on the road, which is where they always executed prisoners, uh, the Romans, was always on the roadside, so people could see the execution. And it's on the road from Bethany to the eastern gate of the temple. Yeah, very similar to my view. Um, the place of execution, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I found this language of outside the camp. Yes. And there was a place on the top of Mount of Olives that was called the place outside the camp. But it's the sacrificial site of the red heifer. Exactly. And you have the causeway going from the eastern gate of the temple across the Kidron to the place of the sacrifice of the red heifer. And that's the whole point. The crucifixion 
everything happens as a sacrifice it's the atonement aspect of this which is so special so you've got all that and and uh, there's so much more about this this whole business of, of jesus they've got the roman laws it's all tied together and uh, and i actually think that there's a, a line in john's gospel that is significant for me it says pilate handed jesus over to them the chief priests and they took him which to me says it may not be a Roman execution site. It may be the place of execution according to the high priests. So if you look at Moses' writings, they would take a, a criminal to the place outside the camp and they would execute him there in the same place that the red heifer was sacrificed. Mm, yeah, I wouldn't agree with that. I think that for me anyway, uh, Pilate was the one who handed him back to the Sanhedrin and they handed him back to the Romans again, as far as I know. We've all seen uh, the life of Brian. We all saw the evidence there. Crucifixion this way. Yes, nice, <laughs> nice to see you. How are you? Uh, are, are you ready? Uh, yes, okay. Blessed are the cheesemakers, I think he said. Yeah, blessed are the cheesemakers because for they shall inherit the earth. <laughs> but, and then the other thing, another thing to bear in mind, what happens when Jesus dies? The witnesses, the Roman soldiers, see the tearing of the, the cloth in the front of the temple. There were two cloths. There was one in the Holy of Holies, and there was another one in the front facade of the temple, the big heavy one. So that all fits as well. And it would make a fantastic documentary. It would. To investigate this whole business. It would. If I do get the funds to do that, I will call you up. Yeah, definitely. And of course, there's a, there's a tomb with a big rolling stone outside it, right in the gardens of the point where the Ascension took place as well. And you've got that chapel of the Ascension there, and next door to it, in the, the garden of the of the church there, you have a tomb with a great big circular stone that rolled over the front of it, which is from the time of the first century. Yep, a lot of parallels to what... Uh, I'll send you my article and you can read it if you're interested, but there's a lot of overlap. Good, I'd look forward to that. So now, going back to my original question about the history and chronology of the New Testament, the reason I asked about this is there was a liberal scholar by the name of John A.T. Robinson who wrote a book yeah. in the late 70s titled Redating the New Testament, in which he presents a kind of paradigm shift in the way we think about mm. the dating of the Gospels and New Testament literature. He was convinced by yeah. the evidence that it was mostly done before 70 A.D., and you won't be surprised to learn that most of academia, by and large, ended up ignoring his thesis. <laughs> oh, surprise, surprise. But now a generation later, people are starting to begin to reconsider his thesis. And I'm just wondering if you are familiar with any of that debate. I'm not. Uh, sorry to say, uh, as I said, I'm just an amateur when it comes to the New Testament, but I've got a bit of common sense in my head. <laughs> uh, and that tells me that there are things in the New Testament that need to be researched because it's not all the way we think it is. Yeah. Um, you know, and, uh, and and it's things like, you know, where was Herod's temple? Where was the execution? Where is the tomb? All those things, you know, are important, and uh, it's a fascinating subject area. I wish I was an expert in it. Richard Bauckham at Cambridge talks about the fact that, uh, you know, you have all these sort of little details in the Gospels that place it securely in Palestine in the early part of the first century with all its people names, place names, architectural details, botanical information. Like John is considered the latest of the four Gospels, and he says yeah. there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate of the Temple, a place with five porticos that was later discovered. But that present tense yeah. language is interesting. Yeah. This was describing something that is. It's like if I said, there is in, in New York a place called the World Trade Center with Twin Towers. That sort of dates the sentence. Yes, of course it does. Yes. I just think fear of being ostracized from the academy sometimes controls the conversation. Yeah, well, when have we heard that story throughout <laughs> history? Yeah. I mean, you can, I'm not saying we can acquaint ourselves with Jesus, but didn't he have the same problem? Yeah, yeah. You know, with the Sanhedrin and all the rest of it, you know, yep. it's always the authorities who want to hold things back. 
and don't want to change. I don't blame them, you know. I mean, they base their careers on that. Exactly. And, and, you know, you have scholars who write the standard research works on the Dark Age of Greece trying to explain away the Dark Age that didn't exist. You know, and and the same thing happens in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Right. So it's it's all a matter of being open-minded and looking at the evidence. And my problem is that nobody ever bothers in the academia, nobody ever bothers to actually understand what the new chronology thesis is. Right. You know, they, they get a few snippets of it and they say, oh, it's impossible, it doesn't work. Uh, uh, but they never bother to actually look at it and see the, what the advantages are of it. So it's the lay public <clears throat> that actually do read my books and say, hang on a minute, this actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I started my uh, my podcast with a conversation with my dad, who mentioned in passing that he he saw Billy Joel perform at a piano bar in Los Angeles. And when my brother, I told my brother the story, he said, "Well, that can't work because Wikipedia says Billy Joel was here at this time when we were living in West Virginia." Don't talk to me about Wikipedia. <laughs> well, it turns out Wikipedia was right, but Billy Joel's own website was wrong. You know, the thing is, when you study history, it's complicated, and you got to yeah. think about possibilities and. Sometimes, you know, you discover a new fact that opens up a totally new paradigm. And of course, that sort of thing takes time to process and to think through. Well, what's ironic is, of course, Wikipedia has become uh, the establishment now. Right. Because actually, when I had a Wikipedia page, which they've now removed, by the way, because apparently I'm not significant enough to have uh. one. But they insisted that I was born in a place that I wasn't born. I know exactly where I was born, <laughs> but they decided that I was born somewhere else. And wow. I tried to tell them I wasn't born there. I was actually born here. And they said, oh, no, you can't say that because you're the person, the subject of the of the page. You're not a credible source. <laughs> you're not a credible source. You're not allowed to say anything here. So actually, I apparently was born somewhere I wasn't born. Hmm. Uh, so they have the authority and you're not allowed to change what they say. I actually saw an interview with one of the founders of Wikipedia complaining about this very thing. It's, he says it's gone rogue and it's it's not really trustworthy anymore. It's a good source for you know kids at university or school or whatever to get material. But when it comes to living people, they are on very dangerous ground when they refuse to accept what that living person tells them needs to be corrected. And, of course, they like to follow orthodoxy. They do not like to follow new ideas at all. So right. you get weird kooks writing stuff in there and editing and refusing to allow people who are actually more wiser than them who have more information to actually correct the mistakes they make. And they like to hide any possibility of revisionism, whether it be New Testament right. or Old Testament or any other subject. Which is why we need to apply critical tests and do a little digging and research so we can be confident about the truth. And that's why I called the show The Humble Skeptic, because we should be skeptical even of our own views, because you know otherwise yeah. confirmation bias sets in and we need to challenge ourselves to say, have I got this right? Yeah, no, you're dead right. And that's why I always say that, you know, I refer to other experts when I'm not an expert. Mm -hmm. And I also say, oh, maybe my ideas will change. And they have. From the time when I first wrote my first book in the 1994 all the way to today, things have changed in the new chronology. Because yeah. when I see new evidence, I adapt and change and shift and move things around. The idea of setting it all in stone or concrete and then forgetting that anybody could ever change it is wrong in my view. You have to be open-minded throughout your career. Yep. Well, I've been talking with the world-famous Egyptologist, Dr. David Roll, and we've been discussing his latest book, primarily, uh, Legendary Kings, The Real Bible Unearthed. This is actually a two-volume work, and the second volume is still yet to be published. Do you have a release date yet for that second volume? I'm still working on it. Um, I should have the book written in probably in the next two or three months, but then there's a whole process of the typesetting right. and getting the photographs done and all the rest of it. Probably another year. I guess that, yes. But at the moment, they're being released out, or oh, the first one was released out as a Kindle. So my books are all in full color, so they're very expensive to print. 
So we're, we're actually doing going the modern way now, and we're actually publishing them electronically. So the next one, the second part of this two-volume set, will probably be coming out the end of the year, something like that. All right. Well, since it's Kindle, is it exclusively Amazon that they can find it at? Uh, yeah, I, mean, I think so. Yeah, okay. but I mean, it, you can read it on any anything like an iPad. Right, right. As well, but in terms of know. acquiring it, probably Amazon's the best uh, yeah. place. Just yeah. go to any of the Amazons wherever throughout the world, and you can get it there. Download right. it. It's actually in three parts to make it a little bit cheaper, so they can buy part one, part two, part three in different sections. Yeah. And they've read one section, they can order the next section. What's fun about a Kindle and what's great about electronic books is you can click on the pictures and make them much bigger. Right. And see the maps in more detail, and you can highlight stuff so you can reference it and come back and find them again. So so it has its uses. Well, I, I'll definitely get in touch with you when your next uh, volume two comes out. Give us a hint of like what's something you're you've discovered that you're writing about now that you're going to release Ooh. next year. All right. Well, when we get to the time of David and Solomon, there's some cool stuff in there. I tell you, um, including who was Pharaoh's daughter who mm -hmm. married King Solomon. So we've got some exciting stuff there to look at, and, and it's amazing to be quite honest because it's all related to. The United Dynasty pharaohs now. So we have a very new way of looking at the time of the United Monarchy period vis-a-vis -vis the United Dynasty in Egypt and the great pharaohs like Ramesses II and Seti I. So we have um, information in the Bible that Solomon marries an Egyptian queen, and you yep. argue that there's actually archaeological evidence for an Egyptian queen residing in Jerusalem. There's more than that, mm. because the, the it's she is the only princess in egyptian history with a semitic name hmm and why because she was promised before she was born by her not her father but her grandfather that she would then marry david's son and so when she was born she was given a semitic name because she was destined to go to jerusalem fascinating well i'm looking forward to receiving that volume when it becomes available and i definitely want to encourage our listeners to order a copy of legendary kings volume one Dr. David Roll, thanks so much for being my guest for these two episodes of the Humble Skeptic Podcast. It's been great fun. Well, folks, if you're interested in exploring some of the issues we've been discussing a little more deeply, as always, be sure to check out the show notes. I'll include links to Dr. Roll's books along with other relevant resources, including the article I mentioned in passing about the location of Golgotha. You can also find many more articles and resources, as well as other episodes you can listen to, simply by heading to HumbleSkeptic.com. That's HumbleSkeptic.com. And I look forward to being with you again next time as we explore the beliefs and ideas that shape our lives. extraordinary to think that here in the British Museum and in the Berlin Museum and the Louvre and the Cairo Museum we have letters from the time of King Saul and King David. It's now contemporary with the Alamana period and we actually have here in this tray a letter from King Saul, a letter from his son Ishmael containing the name of King David. What an amazing discovery.